there. I'm your host, Leslie Randolph. I'm a self-confidence coach for teenage girls and the self-confidence coach you wish you had as a teen. Honestly, I'm the self-confidence coach I wish I had as a teen because I know I could have saved myself and my mother a whole lot of heartache if I'd only known then what I know now. I hope to save you some of that suffering by sharing the lessons I learned late in life right here on Why Didn't They Tell Us. Welcome to the show. Hey, hey, happy people. Welcome back to Why Didn't They Tell Us. So today's episode might look and feel a little different. Um, I'll be honest, I feel a little different going into it. Uh, The topic of today's show is feeling, dealing, and healing from trauma. And I will warn you that we're, depending on where you are on your journey and your healing process, this episode might be triggering. We will be talking about some traumatic events that might activate you, so please take care of yourself however you need to. Uh, Perhaps it's pausing the episode if you need a break, reaching out to a friend, a therapist, or a coach to help process it, or simply finding me on a future episode. Uh, Listen to and honor whatever you need. Now, all that said, I know this is an invaluable topic to tackle, and today's expert guest does it with um, transparency and tenderness. Audrey Grunst is a licensed clinical social worker and the founder and CEO of Simply Be Treatment Centers. She is a professional keynote speaker on the topic of mental resilience, the author of Five Ways to Grow a Resilient Mind, and the host of Well, Not Perfect podcast. Audrey empowers individuals to prioritize their mental health and build a life worth living. Her vision is to is a world where people can simply be themselves. In the wake of the mass shooting that took place at the 4th of July parade in my hometown of Highland Park, Audrey organized and led 700 therapists who spent their days counseling thousands of community members at our local high school where I went to school and where my children will one day go to school. Myself, my friends, my neighbors, my community, and my children were all beneficiaries of Audrey's leadership efforts, and I'm so thankful to have her on today's show. Audrey, welcome and thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. So I want to talk about trauma. And I know from the way that you lead your practice, you you make it this safe space and a space to talk about big things and things that might be scary to talk about. So I want this episode to be that safe space. Um, But I, I want to just use like that we're all working from the same definition because I feel like the word trauma can be misused, misconstrued. Can you, can you give us your definition of trauma that we'll work with today? Yeah, I think that's a great question to start with because it is defined in different ways and how I define it is going to feel different than somebody listening who defines it. So I think the first thing we do is we acknowledge that how we define it is going to be different and that there is no right or wrong way. For me, it's always the experience of an event that has created a internal experience that is physical, mental, and emotional. And not all traumatic events traumatize a person, but if the event does traumatize the person, it's the internal experience that's very unique and very individual to that person and is never meant to be challenged or argued. It's something that we automatically honor. No, oh, I think that's so important uh, because exactly how 
and and as we just use this one experience of this one event, the lens through which I saw it, the way in which I feel it, and the experience that I take with it into my life might not look the same as someone who was standing right alongside me through it. Exactly. Uh, so knowing that, um, because it's going to look different for everybody and it will feel different for everybody. How do we recognize if someone we love is struggling or if I myself am struggling, but don't know that this is just, this is just the normal. And I'm very much using air quotes, the normal response. How can we recognize if someone is struggling? Yeah, of course it will look different for everyone and the impact will look different at different times. So some might respond immediately. Some might respond in the middle term or the very late term. It looks different for everybody, but on the outside, what we see is the basic things changing. So change in sleep pattern, food, engagement, socially, people might be withdrawing or disconnecting finding less meaning or purpose in the world because their worldview has changed and the relationships and the interactions start to change because that person is going through something internally. It is really hard to see someone trauma. It's not always apparent. And so we want to also ask questions and look for conversations that might show us some evidence that someone's struggling internally because they may or may not even be aware of it. Um, Internally, what we know is that we can feel unsettled. We can feel detached from reality. We can lose sense of time, organization. We can also notice that we're not making the same social plans. Maybe we're not setting the same sleep hygiene that we used to have. We're eating or drinking or drugs and alcohol are being introduced or used more than typical. So. We have to look for the subtle, the subtle pieces of what changes and try to catch it soon. But also, if you don't catch it until it's bigger of a problem in your home, that you don't want to beat yourself up over that because it's very easy for the trauma to fly under the radar until it's significant. And the shame and guilt that we might have with someone in our house who shares that is something that we want to work through with family members as well so that they're not carrying that with them. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously in, in having this conversation and knowing that it was coming up for me, I, I certainly looked back and I remembered thinking, and it's so funny because it was like a week after the parade that these services were available to us. So maybe days, but in my head, it was like, how could I have missed all this? That my daughter was all of a sudden in our bed and she wasn't sleeping the same way. And certainly then I actually had gone first because of my guilt and my shame to that I hadn't been noticing it, but that actually just adds a layer, an unnecessary layer of suffering when there's already suffering taking place. Um, Yeah. We're so quick to have the guilt and shame that we missed something and that we should have known better whether that's our children or even ourselves, like, how did I let myself get so far? You know, how did I let this um, alcohol or how did I let this um, sleeping in behavior? Like, how did I let this get so far? And we are so quick to have the, the guilt, which is the feeling of I'm doing something wrong 
or shame, which is I am wrong. I am bad. And when we have that, it's a very subjective experience, meaning that that's something that we do our, do ourselves. Yet when we look at someone else who might have that same experience doing the same things, we're very gentle and non-judgmental and kind. And that being more of an objective view of the person. So we can borrow from that. The common phrase is, how would you treat a friend? What would you say to a friend? And that's what you say to yourself. So we want to acknowledge the piece of guilt and shame really quickly in trauma, because that's the layered piece that is additional suffering on top of what the event caused. Yeah, totally. Yeah. In in my coaching practice, I talk about that all the time. There's the bestie brain and there's the bully brain. And the bestie brain is that friend and exactly how you would talk to someone you love. Because we would never say to someone we love, I can't believe you missed that. You're such a terrible mother. Yet we can often do it for ourselves. Exactly. And we hold ourselves to such high standards. So a parent is going to be saying that to themselves and then maybe a kid is saying, I don't have that problem because I don't identify as someone who's been traumatized or I don't identify as someone in pain. So I'm not even going to have those feelings at all because if I did, I'd be feeling very bad about myself. So when a parent might be feeling guilt and shame, sometimes children and adolescents, they do more avoidance because they just don't want to identify with that at all. Yeah. Totally. And and when we avoid, we miss the opportunity to just allow and process those feelings and tap into that compassion that we deserve and we give so freely to others. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, we air quoted with normal responses because there isn't a normal and I understand that. But um, what is some of the what are some of the trauma responses and what do they look like? I know we can can categorize them. Um, so you've talked a little bit about avoidance. What else could we see? Yeah. So Dr. Conti is a really wonderful researcher and writer. And he talks about there's multiple responses, but he categorizes them in three that I like. And he talks about one is avoidance. We covered. The second one is punishment. And then the third one is control. So the three of those can come from trauma and they can get expressed in different ways. So when we think about the trauma experience internally in the body and in the mind and in the soul, then it's expressed very uniquely for each individual person. But if we talk about the three, the punishment, control, and avoidance, it gives us, I think, something to anchor to and further understand the trauma and understand how it comes out in the more unhealthy ways. So we've talked a lot about trauma right now and the expression in unhealthy ways. And then we can also talk about trauma that's expressed in healthy ways. Give me healthy. Give me healthy. (laughs) What does that look like? So the five ways to grow a resilient mind, one of the concepts in the book talks about a responder effect. So when we are experiencing an internal or a private trauma response, meaning dissociation, or let's say severe um, negative self-talk. Okay. So negative self-talk would be, I don't deserve to feel this way. I wasn't at the parade. So I don't deserve to feel this way. 
then what we experience is either a response to ourselves in that self-talk process or a reactivity to ourselves. So the healthy one is a response. So then it is the, what you called the best friend mind. So the bestie is going to respond to the trauma with loving kindness. The bully is going to respond with the reactivity of continuing that negative dialogue of shame for the emotion and the avoidance of not seeking help because you don't think you deserve it. And then that's the punishment. So when we have a healthy trauma response, it's the response to the experience saying, it's okay that you weren't there and that you're affected. You have all rights to your emotions. And this is something that we are going to be curious about. We're going to curiously kind of journal about that, or we're going to talk to our parents about that. And then we're also going to work on not being judgmental. We're going to have this acceptance of all emotions are okay. All thoughts are okay. So the the response to ourselves could be self-talk during a walk, during journaling, during exercise. It could be any time where you are in a healthy way responding to the internal experience. And sometimes you need a professional to help you do that. And then that's where we come into play. Yeah. Yeah. And so it doesn't always part of the the healing process is really just to become aware of what's happening up there, which I think is really hard for a lot of us when we and and this is so much about what my coaching is about, we kind of buy at face value that what's happening in that beautiful brain of ours is the truth. Right. Right. And we're so inaccurate and biased and narrow thinking when we have the self-reflection that I would say that more times than not, we have not a lot of information about everything that's contributed to the way that we're thinking. And then we're picking up that one piece that feels really bad. And we hold on to that because we want control. We want to change that. So we're going to harp on it until we fix it. But we harp on it in ways that's very punitive and not kind and generous. And I like that you said become aware because that's the first step in growing a resilient mind is to become aware of what's happening mentally, emotionally, physically, and connecting those. So we talk about a big four check-in. So a big four check-in to become aware. And this is something that we can do with ourselves five times a day. We can ask our kids what their big four is. And it's what are your thoughts? What are your emotions? Where are you feeling that physically in your body? And then what urges do you have to fix that problem? And those four questions is where you expand your awareness. And then you get so much more opportunity to be non-judgmental and to be kind because you have a lot of information versus the one thought, which is, I don't deserve to feel this way. We have so much more. You know, we can identify, I have guilt about not being there. I have a thought that if I'm not there, I don't deserve to feel this way. I have an urge to shove this down and never talk about it again. And I feel this in my throat and I feel like it's very, very tight in my throat. If you said that to someone or your child said that to you, you would have so much to work with, but trauma actually shuts us down and doesn't let us do that work very easily. And, and the big four is a quick check-in point and there's journal prompts and um, lots of information in the book about that because it is 95% of work as counselors is becoming aware. And then once we've done that work, we move up the ladder and give ourselves more skills. But 
if we don't do awareness, then we're really working with a very, um, you know, half ingredients to a pie. It's just not going to bake. So I spend a lot of time on that big four and incorporate it left and right. Um, and in between it simply be, and you'll hear me say words over and over and over again, because it all comes from that same model of simplicity and organization to help people grow. The thought, if we approach it with compassion, it's just, it's just what you're thinking, your feelings. We're, we're humans. We have the spectrum of emotion where we can get into not allowing and processing those emotions is that urge question. It makes me just want to never get out of bed again. Or, you know, I'm like you said, I'm not going to seek counseling. Is that often where we see people not being able to health in a healthy way, heal from their trauma? Yeah, because we don't realize that we're trying to solve our pain in maladaptive or unhealthy ways. We don't realize that when we have these experiences and the urge is unconscious, then we have the urge and then we respond to it or we do it. So an urge would be to turn on TikTok and spend two hours on that. So I have this thought, I have this emotion, I have an urge to go on TikTok and check out. Okay, so now you know that you have an urge to go on TikTok. Now you have choices. That's even more information for us to look at and say, okay, in that fork in the road, are you going to go to TikTok? And if you do, do your big four check in again. Every time you catch yourself, you know, build up the awareness. If you're not going to go on TikTok and you're going to urge surf, which is riding the wave of your emotion and not doing the unhealthy behavior, then you can urge surf your way through that until a new emotion comes, a new thought comes, and then you go a different direction. So the urge and the physical sensations are more important than labeling thoughts and emotions. But we have gotten that really backwards in America and Western civilization. We only do like the head up kind of work. And so if we did urge notification, like urge noticing, and then we did physical sensation noticing, we would have prevented a million other thoughts and a million other emotions because we would have kind of taken care of business. Trauma is stored in the body. So the faster we recognize our body cues and we don't then need to accrue so much more thought and emotion behind it. So the trauma is stored in the body in the wake of a highly traumatic event. We're feeling all the feels and a lot of people did. I mean, thousands of people took you up on these services, but for those who, and I don't even think it's those who didn't, you know, I went and I, I talked to someone, my daughter went and talked to someone. Um, we went as a family, my, my two children and I, um, but then we went, we, we went on with our lives, but I, and, and I don't know if it's even trauma or as much of, you know, as we mark one year since this, I, I'm feeling those vibrations again in my body. I'm approaching them with such love and compassion of, yeah, of course this would happen. Um, but if, if we didn't begin that healing after a traumatic event, or we didn't even recognize it as a trauma and our body's sounding an alarm now, how can we answer that call? Yeah, that's a great question. The trauma response if you have a trauma response, because the traumatic event does not need to create a trauma reaction in the body. And if it doesn't, we don't want to feel guilt and shame about that. 
um, we want to just honor that that's the piece of us that was resilient against the traumatic event. If there is a, you know, an initial mourning, an initial grief, an initial panic or shock, and then you find yourself having a normal sleep pattern and diet, and you're not using drugs and alcohol, you're going to work on time, you're still engaged in activities, then that's a good calculation that you are growing and moving forward and moving through. And we're really familiar with that when it comes to grief. You know, it's very similar that if you are doing trauma or grief work, there's going to be good days and there's going to be bad days. The anniversary of loss and death is, is something that is very physically stored in the body. And I agree with you. Like I feel the vibrations of July 4th, right? The week of July 4th was the one year of my dad dying last year. So I was already having grief and then went into Highland Park. So I'm going on a two-year anniversary of both my dad and then one year of Highland Park. So I feel that too. And what I do is I really ask myself, like, what feels good today? What do I think will feel good in a week? And then what feels good in a year? And I had this really, you know, moment uh, mid-spring where I was thinking about the summer plans for my family, thinking about 4th of July plans. And I had to step back and think about how am I going to handle interviews like this? How am I going to handle another parade? And also my children are too young to understand what I experienced. So then I don't want to take the parade away from them, but I decided pretty early on that I'm not going to do a parade on July 4th. So for me, I was like, how do I reconcile all of that? And I just stayed really open to possibilities and didn't try to pick one solution right away. I just always kind of said what feels good, what feels right. And ultimately, I landed on going to visit a best friend of mine, basically a sister. And I chose to visit her because of a few things. And, you know, this is something that I've really had to work on. And one of those things is that she knew my dad very well. And I wanted someone who knew my dad. She is in a different state that has what she calls terrible parades and they don't go. And that was something for me to think about, which is if it's a bad parade and they don't go, my kids won't be upset that they don't go. They'll be excited to be in a different state. So that's just an example of how I had to really think through my process of healing and someone else would have said, you know, I don't want to avoid a parade. I want to go. I want to get back in. Someone else would say that they're going to go to a movie theater. And so everyone's going to be really different. And I worked really hard the first year of grief of my father to grieve in a way that was like daily. What do I need? I joke that some days I took four showers. Some days I took three walks. Some days I just slept in bed all day. I did everything and um, I let everyone know in my world that I was going to act and look different every day. And that was because I was just assessing myself. So I did a year of grief work and went right into Highland Park. And, you know, I didn't expect to do what I did in Highland Park. When I went and asked if I could help, I was one of 20 clinicians who was there to help. And that was an even playing field. We were all there based in the same network and relationships that got us there. And then after the first day, it was really clear that there needed to be someone to step up and take lead for the day. And then 
the next day they asked us to come back and then the demand increased. And so we got up to 160 therapists a day volunteering to see six to 900 people a day. So it evolved. And so part of trauma is that you get into a traumatic event and you don't choose that traumatic event. So in some ways, the actual volunteer experience for me was traumatic because I didn't choose to be there for seven days on day one. It just started to happen to me. And at the end, I really needed to step back because it got to a place where I was in something that I had no preparation for. And it was really starting to affect me. And so then I also had to learn how to set a boundary and step back when there were pressures and expectations to continue. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just want to pause for a moment and send you so much love because I, I share that with you and that loss and um, I know it well. So as you approach that, that milestone, I will be thinking about you and, and holding Thank you. you. I, I love that you, I love that the tool that you offered of what do I need today? What do I need in a week, a month, you know, to just, you know, what's right now and what's future me need and what is future, future me need and giving yourself so much space and grace to say, and I can change it on a dime. Mm -hmm. I can just go, go right back to bed or say, listen, we're, we're staying here. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that that gives such openness. Um, what, and, and you've given us a lot of them, um, but are there any, you know, do's or don'ts as we navigate this, um, whether it's in, in the immediate wake of or a year, years later, um, as you navigate the healing process, anything that's like, maybe mm -hmm. not, or yes, definitely do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what I've seen from people and friends is the guilt and shame causing them to re-trigger and re-enact the traumatic experience. So that might be watching the news, following a new school shooting and following the family stories, then walking, watching a documentary about a school shooting or about a different traumatic experience where we start to get into a place where we are mentally experiencing the internal effects of trauma and we express them or I call them act out. We're acting out the pain through media, through activities that might look healthy, like volunteering or joining an activist group. But you might be doing that and trying to resolve that current state that you're feeling and not realizing it. And so if you are going to engage in sad, hard things because you want to feel better about them, that's the control expression of trauma. And be mindful of that and ask yourself and ask people around you frequently, is this matching my healthy values and helping me grow? Or is this furthering my expression of the trauma and not healing and kind of trying to keep that state? Because the idea that when we're in an emotional state, we like to stay in that emotional state frequently. So to change the state is very hard. And so when we're in grief or we're sad or we're in trauma, 
to change that state is not intuitive. It's actually counterintuitive. So that's why professionals come in and kind of give you a guiding light to move out of that because sometimes we don't know we're doing that. So be careful of what you're taking in on media. Be careful what you're watching on Netflix or Hulu or HBO. What are you reading? And making sure that it's always a pulse. You always know what's what's going on with your choices. And then asking someone else what they think, a trusted person, because they might say, yeah, why don't you take a break from you know, those stories on Instagram doesn't sound like you're really learning or it's helping you. Why don't you take a break? Because then that, that object, that object objectivity comes in and you're like, yeah, why am I following this? Um, In the wake of it, it felt like the, I'm, I'm just jumping in because it's like, oh my gosh, I was so there in the wake of it. It felt like, like a, I had to be in that room. And I say that room of that social media black hole because it, it it offered this sense of control, but it also was a way to just not sit and feel that massive discomfort that again yeah. was just vibrating through me, and that that acceptance of I couldn't control, I I couldn't control what had happened. All all that was left was just to feel, um, and and. And I'm nodding my head too because, and then to do, I'm a fixer. I think that's why I became a coach. It's like, we can fix this or we can look at this and change this and shift this. And so it was also this idea then of like, so what can I do? Versus- I volunteered. When I volunteered, <laughs> it was probably no less than an hour after the shooting. And the helicopter was over us in Lake Bluff where I was at that parade and the helicopter was swarming and I couldn't get to my car because it was on Green Bay Road, which is where they thought maybe he was fleeing. And I went into action mode because I had already had a lot of emotions about gun violence after Uvalde. It really impacted me. It was very hard for me to take my kids to school. And so when I was sitting in my friend's backyard in Lake Bluff and I saw the helicopter and I couldn't get to my car, And I remember just being like, there's two ways out of this. Either I'm going to do something about this or I am going to fall into a puddle of mud and just totally just unravel. Um, So my defense was control. And I think when Dr. Conti puts that into the three, it really helps me understand why I did that and the way I did it and who I contacted is so kind of logical and rational and not emotional at all that I have to look back and be like, Oh my gosh, I went into autopilot fix it. And then seven days later I'm leading, you know, almost a thousand people and seeing thousands of people. And I was in DC seven days later after that. And I just thought, wow, did one decision really put me in this situation? Um, and there were times where I was so out of my comfort zone um, and it was scary at times. And so even this last year, I have been very careful about what I have done and haven't done for my own mental health because I've learned that after control, I go into avoidance. So then I'm absent and that's the opposite of what I was. And that's confusing for people. And I have to be careful of that. Um, and it, it's also your experience. Yeah. And 
and the awareness of it and to see, oh, this is my pattern <laughs> and this is what I do. And for all of us to just notice our patterns. And again, is it, do we find it productive? Is it, as Audrey so beautifully outlined, is it impacting here, here, here? Or is this part of my process as I just heal? And I, and I said, I broke this down for me, like the feel, the deal, and then the heal, because it does feel like different phases almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, grief is so backwards and forwards and sideways. And um, I think grief is something that I'm more familiar with or more open about than trauma. And so I naturally associate the two very closely in my own journey because I can be a therapist, but I'm not a very good therapist to myself. And so sometimes I step out of what trauma is and then I step into what do I know? And I know, I know grief very familiarly recently. And so I sit into the, okay, like this is how I've been doing grief and this is how I'm doing trauma because I'm grieving a safe world and that's really awful. And we have to find our way through that and everyone's going to be very different. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that is a a sad moment. Yeah. I'm grieving a safe world. Um, and as you talk about how we all were still raw after Evaldi and, and you layer your personal grief um, on top of that. And, and we were all still raw from COVID. I mean, not that one in the same, but it was just a world turned upside down and then like a snow globe just kept being shaken. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that this is a really, an, a nice pathway towards, and this is really your wheelhouse of cultivating resilience and mindfulness in a chaotic world. Because I think, um, our children show up at school now subconsciously with this on their shoulders. My son asked me the other day, we were at the pool, and he asked me the other day, Mom, what does the C stand for in Alice? And for those who might not know Alice, Alice is now an active shooter drill that takes place at schools. You know, when you and I were kids, um, we had the fire drills. This is, you know, part of their world now. Um this was on a summer day. School is out. And this just obviously popped into his beautiful brain while we were out enjoying the world. Um, so how do we cultivate resilience and mindfulness in today's mm-hmm. world that doesn't always feel safe? Right. And that's, for me, like the biggest topic and like the most important thing that I always want to talk about with resiliency because life was never meant to be easy. And so we have been designed to go through trials and hardships, and then we're supposed to grow from them and and move into something new. And I am so comfortable with that, that it's easy for me to say, you can go through the hardest times of your life and have a belief and a hope that you will be stronger and better afterwards, even if in the moment you don't feel that way. And so thinking about what do I need today? What do I need this week? What do I need in the next month to grow and to heal? So I want you to think about the outdoors, listen to your favorite podcast, join a new gym, 
eat the food that you like, see the friends that you want to take the trip that you're going to do. And also continue to do homework and go to work and continue normalcy, but also continue the things that aren't normal. Like what is new, fresh, novel, exciting? What invigorates you? What brings you joy? How do you celebrate? And how do you combine those two things so that you keep moving and taking care of yourself? And when it gets sticky, the things that you've been doing are the habits. And so the the resiliency is not just mental toughness and pushing through and being strong. Resiliency in my mind is hard work, lots of celebration, lots of new things, novelty, trying painting, trying a new ceramics class. Um, because your new novelty is going to express that trauma, but it's going to be healthy. And we've talked about how we find that healthy outlet rather than the reactive outlet towards ourselves. Mm-hmm. I love all that. I love all that. Yeah. What would you say to our teens and the moms who love them, all of which who might be dealing or healing uh, from from this experience? Mm-hmm. I think you need to stay connected to each other. And that can come in many forms. But the connection for a family is going to be vastly unique to each family. We don't want shut doors and isolation or noses in the phones. We want connection through, I think, celebration and joy. Teenagers don't like to talk. So don't talk to them. Connect to them in different ways. Um, do the hard stuff. You know, Watch their show with them. Play video games with them. Ride their bikes with them you know, go to ice cream and sit and just eat and smile and laugh and people watch, you know, connection with teenagers does not need to be conversation. I feel like that's such a high bar and most of us aren't very good at it. So we need to just go into more like physical connection and action rather than thinking that we need to talk because teenagers aren't always available. To, to talk um, for a lot of different reasons. And so try to go outside of the box, but maintain that connection. Yeah, I love that. Meet them where they are. I, I can already see my thumbs getting ready <laughs> for when my, my son says, mom, come play Fortnite. He's not a teenager yet, but I, I, I know that that'll be his love language. Well, Audrey, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for um, uh, your, your, Ability to and willingness to um, support and to lead when this now knowing, too, that this was such a a tumultuous time for you in many ways. Um, And as someone who benefited from it, I I just personally thank you. I know the community thanks you and um, and I just appreciate you. But anything else before we close out today's show, I'll leave it with you of any final words of wisdom, tips. Um, I leave it to you. Yeah, I think it's the classic. It's okay to not be okay. And it's important to ask for help. It's important to offer help, even if someone doesn't want to hear it and they don't want to see it. Um, we want people alive and well at the end of the day. So don't be afraid to have those hard conversations. Our ability or our, our desire to have some of those hard conversations, just the amount of people that did 
come through those doors. Um, and that, you know, I, I had the pleasure of meeting Audrey in person uh, at a mental health walk, an action walk organized by Simply Be, um, that we are taking the stigma out of talking, the stigma out of mental health, the stigma out of seeking support. Um, so I hope, I hope today's episode was helpful for you, but this is not <laughs> a replacement for, or this is one of those, you know, wonderful ways that Audrey talked about getting resilience. If you need support, um, please reach out to experts like Audrey and the incredible therapist at Simply Be. Um, we all live in a world where there is access to mental health. And I urge and encourage all of you to um, to seek it out because as Audrey said, life isn't easy. It was never meant to be, but we are so blessed to have um, support systems and a an opportunity to take care of our minds and our bodies and to heal and heal together. So Audrey, thank you so much. Um, I will include all of her information in the show notes, but you can find her at Simply Be and also on social media. It's a joy to follow her on social. And uh, when she's not on podcasts like this or uh, working in private practice, she's also out in the community as an activist, a volunteer, a philanthropist, and a, uh, a professional speaker. So Audrey, thank you so much. Thank you. I really, really appreciate and value the opportunity to continue this conversation. And it's hard, but if our listeners are still with us, then I think that they probably gained a lot from the conversations that you had. I, I hope they are, and I know they will. <laughs> Till next time, my friends. Thank you. Thank you. Love what you hear? Well, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at confidencecoachforgirls.com. That's confidencecoachforgirls.com or email me at lesliethelifecoach at gmail.com. That's lesliethelifecoach at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you.